it took a little bit of time. And one of the things I did to address that was each year before their goal setting, I would charter a team of six to eight people from different areas of the organization. I would invite them in and I'd tell them, I want you to come up with whatever you could imagine Carlsbad to be in the next five to 10 years. There are no constraints on what you can say. I expect you to be creative in your process and I'm not going to hamstring what you put out there. So you need to be a little bit responsible about what you put out there, but I want you to share that with the council. That'll be how we kick off the council goal setting and they can work off that. And so these groups all the way from, I can remember one year I used a woman who's now a PhD at Fresno State as the chair of this team. So I would take some of my high potential people and involve them in that bigger picture. And it works two ways. It spreads out into the organization and it works toward the council and it stretches the council. And sometimes it made the council uncomfortable. But I would tell them that's exactly what I asked them to do. So if you're uncomfortable, be uncomfortable with me because I'm trying to help you. I came across Ray Patchett's work over a decade ago in one of my favorite books, Community, The Structure of Belonging, by Peter Block. In the back of the book, Peter includes a section on role models and resources, in which he includes Ray Patchett. Peter writes, Ray Patchett, former city manager of Carlsbad, California, is a very special city manager. He has, in a unique way, applied the ideas of organization development and learning organization to building community like no other public servant I know. The mention of a municipal manager with organization development skills really caught my attention. As I reread the book this year, I decided to reach out to Ray and introduce myself. I discovered that he has been consulting, teaching, and is now writing a book. We began recording our conversations and covered so much territory, I decided to create two podcast episodes. If I could make an analogy to dance training, A master class is one in which it doesn't matter whether you are a beginner or very advanced. You will benefit from the experience of taking the class. This interview reminds me of that. In part one of the interview, Ray talks about his early career and lays the groundwork for principal ideas that guide his thinking. The show notes highlight references made in the episode. Ray also shares some resources from his work. If you like what you hear today, Sign up for the PCC Local Time newsletter to get an email in your box every Friday with resources like this. Check the show notes for a link. Later, in part two, which will come out in the next few weeks, we will take a deep dive into the role of bureaucracy in the involvement of organizations and the importance of engaging different perspectives. I begin this interview by asking Ray to tell us something about his book on the traits of high-performing teams which he is writing with Val Brown. Off we go. Are you getting more academic in terms of trying to explain your approach or are you trying to bring to life what you did together at the city? It's really the integration. One thing about aging is we begin to integrate, Mm -hmm. synthesize that, which is our experience, And so my experience was 34 years in local government and 15 plus as an OD consultant. 
I want to integrate that with OD practices. And that's what it's about and leadership philosophy. So it's those kind of three branches woven together into a strand of thinking around how to build great teams. So these traits, it's taken me probably 40 plus years to write these traits and it represent, and let me just say it this way. If I were going to say to you, how would you characterize Nancy as a leader or Nancy's organization? If I said to you, Nancy and her team are really good about setting the course and staying on course. They've shaped and energized a really good culture. They have really good people. They empower those people to deliver results. They've figured out how to work together effectively. They trust each other and everything they do, and they focus on getting results and reality and the outcomes they want. Would that be a good team? It's a mouthful there. Yeah, <laughs> I need to take it one by one. That's why uh, it's that's broken up into eight. Yeah, um, the, it is a, an orchestra in a way. We that analogy is perhaps an old analogy, but I think about what I can bring versus what Ray Patchett would bring versus what maybe about Brown would bring. Speaking humbly from from my perspective, usually I'm starting right where the team is at, and I figure out what it is that they have that is possible to develop. I think the team can rise in great ways, but it's never going to hit every element. Like there's always like this side of it that are is weak and this side of it that's really strong. And then you play to those strengths and you keep these other areas for future development. Maybe when another team member comes along. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you were to answer that question, let me say it this way, Ray. I was looking over as I was waiting for Zoom to figure out what it wanted to do and restarting my computer. I just wrote down the lessons that you must have learned to get to the point of what you understand in this book that interests me. And I was thinking of, can you describe yourself when you first became the manager of Carlsbad? How would you describe yourself then versus maybe how you describe yourself when you began your next career after you left? Wow. Let me do a couple of things and then I'll come back to your question. How's that? Okay. So the first thing, I guess, in, in the design thinking, I think, is the process you like. These would be the preferred future characterizations of the organization. If, if you happen to have that document open, there's a section, the middle column yes. uh, is called Great Team Practices. So mm -hmm. if you want to set the course and stay on course and stay focused on the business you're in, the practices to do that. In OD world, we call them interventions, but people get very excited when you say we're going to do an intervention. They <laughs> put them in recovery. Exactly. Yeah. So we call them practices. And so you set, it's basic strategic planning. A, set a stretch vision, clarify the team's mission. In design thinking, preferred future, what's the team there to do? And uh, get clear about your values. So that's a standard strategic planning process. Smart goals, same thing. Standard smart goal process. Maybe they have a mission statement. A lot of, unfortunately, when I wrote my thesis, city managers had not done much strategic planning. But so I rate 
those are the processes. But so what I did was write a chapter for each one of these traits. I went through each one of those practices and I laid out a process for somebody to facilitate. Unlike an academic exercise where they talk about all these things, but they don't tell you how to do it. There's a lot here, but I'm thinking from the standpoint of the manager who is still coming up in the profession. So would you describe yourself when you first became manager? I would have to say I was a ambitious, fairly capable, standard public administrator. Standard. Interesting. Yeah. You said. I don't yeah. think at that stage, you're not aware of the fact that you're unaware of a lot of aspects about doing those jobs. A lot of times you watch a lot of people, their ambition outstrips their competence. And I'm not going to say I wasn't competent because I could get things done, but how effective was I at it? I wonder if you could take yourself back to those early years and if you could describe the dream that inspired you. Let's see. I didn't grow up wanting to be a city manager. I didn't even know what one was. I was a music major, a performer, and I intended to be a music teacher and a performer. And that's what I did in the Army. I was in the music and in the band and um, started that way in college and got went after some money for the choir and the band. And the student body president there just laughed at me. And I remember I said, if you can do it, I can do it a hell of a lot better than you can. And I got involved in student government. This is up at Shasta College. And uh, got on the student senate, ultimately became student body president and uh, made sure the choir and the band got money, as did the football team and the basketball team and everybody else that needed money. We expanded the pie rather than was this or that we we didn't do that we expanded the pie of revenue and that was the way we funded everything that resulted in me getting to go to the usc and i had to pick a major and at that time that would have been like in 1974 if you went left you went to the business school and if you went right you went to the school of public administration at that time it's got a different name now but same thing I had been a beneficiary of the safety nets of society. And if you went to the business school, my perception was you got to sell Xerox machines. And I didn't want to do that. So I went to public administration. I was a veteran living on $175 a month. So I needed a job. So I got an internship in the city of Manhattan Beach. I thought, I'll work in personnel. I'll be a personnel director. I thought that'd be a good thing. I was interested in that. And I'd done a, I think it was strong vocational interest survey, and it said I should be a chamber director or a parks and recreation director, <laughs> which would have been fine, uh, at least parks and rec. <clears throat> so I got there. I got the internship I was doing. I was there about a month. And I'm going, I don't like that. I don't want to do this. This is all about compliance. Yeah. And <laughs> And, and while I agree that we need to have compliance, I'm more about let's build this place, let's make it better, let's improve it, and 
for whatever reasons, the city manager started bringing me down via the end of the building, working on some of his projects. And then one of my professors happened to work for the city of Burbank and the research and analysis office, which was a branch arm of the city manager's office. And he invited me up to see what they were doing one day. And I had no idea what it was, it was a secret interview. Anyway, I got hired in Burbank. And once I saw what was going on in the city government, I was like, I want to be the city manager. I, I, I want to be, I want to be in charge of the organization. I don't want to be a politician. That's not my goal. I don't have that in me. Plus you got to start that early, have a lot of money and a whole bunch of stuff. So I thought, well, I'll be a city manager. They can have a lot of positive impact. And so that's how that career ladder started. That gives me a whole new frame. But I, I can imagine back to this idea that you're now a city manager at Carlsbad. Yes. And you're thinking that it has real possibilities. So you've come into that with this idea that there is real potential here to affect positive change. What I'm trying to get at here, in order to get to these traits, like how these traits eventually developed over the course of your career, there were some oh. hard lessons. And I want for the managers to, to understand that you, you don't come out of the gate understanding fully. You might have read the books, you may have studied, but this takes time to, to develop in your own mind what that looks like. Like, what does that look like for Ray Patchett? And so to really bring this to life, I would like to talk about some of the lessons. And I might even use, if you would, the word disillusionment. Oh, this is the way it works. And that you had to either adjust your own framework in terms of what you were going to bring to the table, or you had to, and this could be before all your advanced studies, you had to figure out how can I get other people to come with me? Or I'm not sure. It was, I learned a lot of really good stuff in Burbank. That office was particularly good. And the interns there typically went off and became city managers. So I had a bunch of stuff like, they don't do this anymore, but what planning, programming, budgeting systems are all about goals and objectives. And I learned a lot of good philosophy. So when I got to Carlsbad, I had a pretty good foundation of ways to do things in city government. Mm -hmm. So the story with respect to trait one, set the course and stay on course, is once the council appointed me city manager, I can remember we were walking out of the building and I said to the mayor, this is the night I got appointed. And it was a surprise. I didn't know they were going to do that. I said, okay, buddy. His name was Buddy Lewis. I said, okay, buddy. <laughs> what do you guys want me to do? And he goes, oh, just do what you do. And I said, well, that's not how it works. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, I'm going to ask you guys what you want to do. So I'll meet with each one of you, and then we'll meet as a group, and we'll figure out what the council's goals were. So I met with each council member, and I got something like, we want to redo Carlsbad Village Drive, or we want to do a traffic signal at... And I'm like, okay, I got all that stuff, but what else? So it was pretty basic. It was, they'd never been asked that before. So the first thing we did was we went through a 
strategic visioning and goal setting process. As I told them, if you, you know, if I just do what I do and you guys decide to fire me, I'll never know why it was that I got fired. If I got fired because I was doing something you don't want done, that's not fair to me. If you ask me to do things that need to be done and you want done and I don't get them done and I get fired, that's fine with me. That's how it works. And so that was the first step. And I heard you say in there a little bit about they were very specific about the things they wanted, but they didn't necessarily have intention around a larger vision. Initially, it took a little bit of time. And one of the things I did to address that was each year before their goal setting, I would charter a team of six to eight people from different areas of the organization. I would invite them in and I'd tell them, I want you to come up with whatever you could imagine Carlsbad to be in the next five to 10 years. There are no constraints on what you can say. I expect you to be creative in your process, and I'm not going to hamstring what you put out there. So you need to be a little bit responsible about what you put out there, but I want you to share that with the council. That'll be how we kick off the council goal setting, and they can work off that. And so these groups, all the way from, I can remember one year I used a woman who's now a PhD at Fresno State as the chair of this team. So I would take some of my high potential people and involve them in that bigger picture. And it works two ways. It spreads out into the organization and it works toward the council and it stretches the council. And sometimes it made the council uncomfortable. But I would tell them that's exactly what I asked them to do. So if you're uncomfortable, be uncomfortable with me because I'm trying to help you. Another way, one of the things you have to do is help the council develop without telling them you're helping them develop. So how do you do that? Yeah. It's essentially you're the rabbi in the group. You're like the minister in the group without being religious. You're that, that kind of thing. You're there as a source of help. And, and so I would get them involved in like the Alliance for Innovation Transforming Local Government Conference, which is what I told you about. Yeah. Okay. And why would I do that? Because they're going to hear a thing. I know what they're going to hear there. When they hear it from someone else, it's like a spouse, right? Sometimes a spouse tells you something and you go, yeah. But if the neighbor tells you the same thing, you might go, that's brilliant. Now, why we are like that? I have no idea, but we are. And so you put them in forums, you invite them to go to forums, like the Transforming Local Government Conference and things like that. But electives can't be expected to know as much about how the whole system fits together anyway. You get a dentist, you get two teachers, you get a, a, a recycling yard owner. They need help and they all want to succeed. So how do you help them? You just gave a mini lecture there that I think would be so valuable. Like what you just went through is right on target for I think managers that I know would be very helped by that conversation. But there's this little piece here, this little piece here that I just want to get clear on because managers will say, it's not my job to create the vision. And my response to them is that similar to what you said, that the elected officials don't necessarily see the whole 
system. So it's the job of the professionals and the, the team to present to the council that potential or that what could be and that they can set. So I, and I'm just putting words in here, but I think you get the idea. But I want to just be clear that your philosophy was not that you're planting that the vision. It wasn't your vision. It was just you were bringing together the stakeholders that could help craft that vision. That's generally correct. Let me say the two things that are crossing my mind as you're saying that and reacting to what I said. A city manager's job is a partnership with the council. Mm -hmm. That's really what's going on. It's a partnership. And it's depicted in the city council, city manager form of government. City, city managers sit at the intersection of politics and administration. And they're the cultural interpreters for the council about what they're telling the administration to do. And they're the interpreter to the administration about what the council's trying to get said. And so if you imagine two ovals, this is actually, I developed a model I call sustainable community organization development model or sustainable community governance model, whatever. And it's built off of three things. It's systems thinking, inputs, transformation, outputs. That's what basically what design thinking is. It's the public policy process, politics, policy, and administration. And it's the city council, city managed form of government integrated into a mod. In fact, I used to have my students at San Diego State do a paper, a major paper on that so that they were, I'd make them tattoo it if I could, but it represented one of the problems we have today particularly when we see what's going on with the FBI. If you look at the FBI or the Durham report relative to the FBI, and this is not being political, this is just being an observer. It's pretty clear that the professionals politicize their positions. You're not supposed to do that in those kinds of positions. We need professionals. And unfortunately, now the trust in that organization, which we need trust in, has been dashed, at least for many of us. Yeah. So that's how it works for me. So it's a partnership that with yeah. the council. It's not, I, you have to nurture that system. And the way you nurture it is a lot of times it's with stuff like Peter Block talked about and John McKnight. And transforming local government. Transforming local government is a national intervention that addresses, or at least it used to, I haven't been to one in quite a few years, but it used to have the best of the best of class organizations and processes. People from different cities and counties share what they're doing so other people could mimic it and had speakers and peter helped design the very initial the initial tlg conference and has breakout sessions so people develop relationships and they talk with one another i used to take i don't know anywhere between eight and 20 people to that thing anyway it was a partnership job actually it's more than a job it's a partnership lifestyle and that's what it is. You're looking all directions at all times, omnidirectional, I guess we could call that. And you're there to support the council and follow up and implement. And did I agree with everything the council wanted you? 
No, of course not. But I had a savvy old city manager come see me about two days after I got appointed. And he walked in, Marty Bowman was his name. He was a contract traffic engineer for us. He said, Ray, congratulations. You got a great job. I said, thank you, Marty. He says, don't go down on a traffic signal. I said, what does that mean? He says, look, they're going to make decisions that you aren't going to agree with. I said, yeah. He says, a traffic signal is just one sort of decision. And you're going to find out that even if they go against the traffic engineer's recommendation and the city and the city manager's recommendation, the sun comes up tomorrow. It's the damnedest thing that's been going on. I said, Marty, that was really seasoned advice, and I'm going to take it. And so the sun does come up tomorrow every time. And when you realize that, and this is the city managers, if you think about how many recommendations the staff and you make, contrast events, how many the council goes a different direction, I'm guessing it's 99 to 1 staff recommendation. Now, if you're a big league ball player, how many millions would they pay you for those 99 recommendations? If I could get one of these batters for the Padres to hit 99 out of, nine out of 10 times, he or she'd be worth a lot of money, right? So city managers to get focused on what the council's doing they don't like are maybe looking the wrong direction. The right direction is you get 99% of what you recommend. Keep playing. That is good stuff. Engagement is difficult for a lot of managers. So again, going back to what I see is the needs of the audience is like, how does he do that? But engagement, all these engagement strategies are different practices and processes. So engagement is an affect in my mind. It's an intangible. It's basically people being committed to their work. So what if they're engaged? What is you, the road to engagement and high performance? That's basic, but that's where I go with that kind of stuff. It's like, as a manager, the manager mm-hmm. in me, because there's still a lot of manager in me, it's like, if I'm going to do this, what are we going to get out of it? <laughs> that, that's very classic manager. They say that's me a lot. So what's the tangible? It's like, engagement is a tangible, but you don't see it. You're expressing exactly what I hear managers say. But we don't have any research that I know of in public sector about what an engaged workforce gets. But if you look at Gallup's material, they say that productivity increases, what is it? Bottom line. 22%. (laughs) Yeah. Let me look it up here. Productivity plus 22% for Gallup, work quality improved, goal achievement, talent retention. These are all things, right? So the question you asked is, how do you develop engagement? For me, the first thing is help people understand that their work is highly meaningful. Public service is their calling, whether they recognize it or not, whether they think they knew or didn't know, public service is their calling, and they want to help people. And when people start to understand that their service is their calling and you start to foster that belief, people are more engaged. So what's one process by which I did that? Well, on the onboarding programs, the first Monday that people would come, and we did these like once a month, I would come spend an hour 
with the new employees from every department. And I had with me letters that the city had received thanking us for our service and explaining quality. And so I would read some of those letters, and some of them were tearjerker letters. People would cry. And I'd touch them and I'd tell people, you must be really good at what you do because you would have never gotten hired here if you weren't really good. Because we have a lot of people that want to work with us. That's the good news. The bad news is you're going to have to deliver at that level. And you're going to have to provide that service. And we'll help you do that. We'll help you learn. We'll develop you. And we appreciate what you do. But that's what you do. So I'm not going to talk about org charts. I've never talked about org charts in those sessions. That's all I talked about was public service, the letters to get them there, and telling them they must be special or they wouldn't have been able to join us and thank them for coming. Great story. Can you say what is maybe your philosophy when you encountered, and we're pretty sure this is not somebody that was going to work out? The short answer is we moved them on and we helped them move on. But the reality is, and I use this metaphor from time to time with groups, I said the Chicago Bulls won like six or seven NBA championships. Do you think it was easy playing on that team? And people are stunned. They're like, what do you mean? And I said, it's harder to play at the highest levels than it is to be average. Do you want to play at the highest levels? Then you're in the right place. If you just want to get by, you're probably in the wrong place. I used to tell the team, it's like they'd start carping about some other city being bad. And I say, we don't raise ourselves up by making them less. And we're not competing with them anyway, because they're in the same business we're in. We have to compete with ourselves and get better. That's what we have to do. So that's what I want to talk about. Let's talk about us. It must have been there even back in your college days when you said the money should be there for the yeah, band, the band and so forth. Choir. Yeah. Right. So you were speaking out at an early age. You brought that with you. And I don't know whether that's something that you had to tame or adapt in your role as city manager. What I wrote down for my own self was on speaking out, let me look at that page. Yes, but how we do it is the question. There's processes and forms. There's ways to speak out. I sense from the question, some people are like getting themselves caught in disagreeing with the council on, let's take a controversial issue. I would make sure we made our best professional recommendation. And probably in my briefings, I'd be very candid with the council that you probably are going to have winners and losers if you guys pursue this matter. Half the people like this stuff, half the people don't as a general rule. It's not exactly the business we're in. And uh, so what do you have to gain by pursuing this path? What's the exit ramp if you get in there? Just keep that in mind as you're playing with this stuff. Oh, I like that. What's the exit ramp? It's all, it, <laughs> Beginnings are always easy. Yeah. Exits are tough. Is this a military lesson? No, actually. <laughs> it's not. A, it's a lifelong lesson. Think about all the relationships you've had with someone else. And the guy that wrote up the best book for this is Bill Bridges on managing transitions because are you familiar with Bridges? Yes. Okay. I haven't read that in a while, but I'm familiar. 
This whole point is you have new beginnings and you have endings. And in the middle, you have this psychological period that's like an abyss. It's a psychological transition period where you have to come to grips with the loss, the ending, in order to move the new beginning. And so I've done workshops on that because when you ask people, what should we focus on? They want to focus on the new beginning. That's fine. But what about all these things over here that haven't ended? And managers in particular are challenging with that because we sit there and we come up with these ideas or somebody comes up with them. We say, yeah, let's go do that. And then we're off to the next hurrah. The staff is trying to get and come to grips with it. So let's take my most fabulous failure, in my opinion, is implementing a new CRM system, Customer Relationship Management Systems. 20 years ago, it was early in the process. We did everything right. Did the training, got the right technology, implemented it. It was a fabulous flop because what we missed from a technical standpoint, we did everything right. What we missed was it was really a culture change that we needed to address. And we didn't do it. And so the workarounds were faster than the fixes. <laughs> and it didn't really work. So what did you do? We went back and said, okay, let's figure out how to do this. And we went back and started doing more work on the culture. Mm -hmm. Focusing on customer service and, and stuff like that. I was in a group the other day. You'll appreciate this as a consultant. And it's a water agency group. And it's meter readers and customer service people. And so I said, hey, there's about 15 of them there. I said, who's your customer? Oh, and it's also the maintenance people. I said, who's your customer? The residents. Anybody else? No. Are you sure? Yeah, it's the residents. I said, you don't serve one another at all? Yeah. You're each other's customer. Help each other. You could just see the little lights go on. It's like, right. oh. It's like, oh. Yeah. And that's a great story. One of my successes was around a CRM program that was put in, and it's only because I partnered inside the organization with a technology guy who is such a people person. <laughs> and so it was just such a gift. So when we met, I really zeroed in on the process, which was just to find out what they do now. Like, what's the situations that arise? All of their customer problems. And he was able to be the bridge between the new, the new technology and what they do now. So, but it was, they were sure that they were going to end up leaving because they said, I can't do that. We were trying to break down the silos, do a one-stop service so they could help people with any different area. They said, oh, I only do trash. <laughs> you know? Okay, I'm a specialist. <laughs> yes. And it was an amazing transformation, but it was a, that cultural shift. Affirmative topic. Yeah. Partnership wheel, affirmative topic. So what's an affirmative topic? Safe community. Okay. If we want to create or a safer community, mm -hmm. who are the stakeholders for safer community? My whole point is that convening every conversation should be on purpose. If you convene people without a purpose, it just irritates them. Mm -hmm. Maybe even worse. <laughs> it's like, why are you wasting my time? 
Now that's a little tricky and I have to wrestle with that myself because as collaborative as we can be, one of the things you want is maybe to have the group help figure out the affirmative topic. And so for example, if I were going to campaign a group on safety, let's just stay with safety since we started there. Mm -hmm. I might come in and say, let's talk about what a safe community looks like. What can you imagine it would be like and chart some of that? Okay, so if we want to create that outcome, that preferred future, I think in your language, right? What topic do we want to put in here so that we can partner in the creation of that? Safe community? Maybe we need to focus on a specific area. Crime-free. Crime anyway, it's an affirmative topic, and that comes from my time with Cooper Ryder and Appreciative Inquiry. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with David, but he was one of our instructors, and he's really good. And his process is you, the 4D model, you discover the best of what is through questions. You dream imagine preferred future of what could be you design organize that destiny that result and it just keeps going but you pivot off the affirmative topic not the problem statement and so with group particularly partnership groups um i would always try to find an affirmative topic you uh, uh, yeah it's really important because the language you choose and the questions you ask set the course of, of where you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you say crime problems, people are going to drill right into that. Safe community. What does a safe community look like? And let's say that safe sidewalk, safe walking, safe traffic, whatever the categories are. Then you could actually convene groups to address each and report back and create a little book of yeah. partnerships results. I, when I look at this, I think a little of the stakeholder mapping, which of course is a design yeah, similar. And visually speaking, putting on a board the comment bubble coming out of business. What are businesses saying in this conversation? What does community safety mean to them or what do they care most about? So I think of those conversations and it's interesting too, the project that I'm working on community safety, which has been occupying my mind for several years now, but it gets down to perceptions and feelings of safety, which I'm just beginning to hear, which is you've invested in technology. What is it that you're actually creating? You're creating to a large extent a perception of safety. As long as you have also had the conversations with the community. This goes back to your earlier example of CRM. If you haven't prepared for the cultural change of having cameras everywhere, then you're going to fail at this. So there's a whole lot of partnership going on. But at the, if the community is invested, both the community and the police and the local government and so forth are invested in this, then it creates more than anything perceptions or feelings of safety. So it's a it's part of the community safety conversation that isn't necessarily about 
how many crimes because we might we might actually have more our numbers may go up if we get better but i don't know what you did in carlsbad if there was specific kinds of issues but uh, you could just keep going with community i've been wrestling with this myself and i'm i keep coming back to the term and maybe you can react to this i don't know what first principles are but there's some basic first principles right what what did block and custom right and freedom and accountability you have freedom and you need to claim and accept your accountability i'm an advocate of that I'll choose and make my choices, and I'll accept and be accountable for the consequences of those choices. That's like back to the first question I said to the mayor, what do you guys want me to do? Just do what you do. No, not going to work. So if, the, if you get the freedom without having to be accountable as a public policy, that is things like no consequence if you don't take more than $900 worth of goods. That's contrary to accepting responsibility and accountability. So that's where I've gone to. We don't have to go through all the traits, but there's some really great ones here. What kind of culture would you shape? Ask any organization what their culture is. Mm -hmm. What do they usually say? We're going to do a, we're going to do a culture change here, right? They can see their own future if they begin to talk through what it is that Asking them the questions about what do you mean by high performance and getting them to really visualize is, yeah. So if you look at the traits, the trait to shape and energize the right culture, you'll see that I say, and this causes people's head to explode, promote an effective bureaucratic clan, public service and learning culture. Those all have distinctive characteristics and qualities, every one of them. And what causes people's head to explode is leaving bureaucratic in there. I love that. And I say, we deliberated on whether or not to include that. It is what all these organizations are designed as. They're all mimics of the same thing, and it's technically a bureaucratic organization. So the question isn't, are you going to be bureaucratic? It is, how do you make it the most effective you can in a clan environment, family-friendly, Everybody wants to be part of the family, right? And here's where you get the engagement, the public service, the service calling, the commitment, and learning's how you get the continuous change. So there are traits for all of them that you can foster to engage and shape the culture of the workforce. But as Block and Kestenbaum and Cooper Ryder all say, Language is faithful, change the conversation, change the culture, but you got to know what words to use. Mm -hmm. And most of us as managers are really, just like we were born to do, we mimic. And that's, I guess, the answer to your first question. Yeah. What's the difference? I mimicked that which I saw before, and today I might create more than mimic. Yeah. You are being mimicked, or you could be. You're in, you've been in a place of leadership where you are mindful. That's that whole self as instrument thing. Yeah. That would be an interesting conversation point about bureaucracy. And I love predictability and order in government, like just understanding why it's there. And it needs to be there. These organizations are like 
They may be 80 people, they may be 8,000 people, but there needs to be boundaries, there needs to be division. And so if you're going to have that, but I say this to my friend Ed Everett up in Redwood City, and he explodes. You got to take that crap. He's pretty verbal. He has stuff out of there. And <laughs> that's not the words he used, but he said it. And then Val's too. She said, Ray, we got to take bureaucratic out of it. No. <laughs> Let me say bureaucratic. All organizations are bureaus. Businesses too. You look at even these, there are probably 78 or biotechs in this community right now. They're all organized as bureaucracies, even if they don't call themselves that. What's different? The purpose and the mission and what the people are capable of doing. And so you take a city organization and we are a collection of professions. That's what we are. So I had a conversation with one leader, he used that word bureaucracy, and he also used the word agile. And he went on to explain how he was agile in a very bureaucratic organization. And he did a great job of explaining that model. So it was interesting to me. You make a very good point that there's, we're all, all organizations are a bureau. It just can it can look different. It can be arranged differently, a different pattern, slow change. All of that's true. And these organizations yeah. go on long after each one of us have been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to a town in Denmark that was 800 years old. And the road network they laid out 800 years ago is still the road network they had today. Improved, but basically the same road network. Really interesting. Yeah. I forget the name of the town. It wasn't much of a town, but it was still the same. It's an interesting way to think about it. So is Boston. How they did sign the streets in Boston, allegedly the way the cows walked on the hills. So we have our time there. You think about what's the life of a company and you can stretch that out. But when you think about the life of a municipality. Forever. It's a long framework. It's a long, yeah. a long that, game. As far as I know, very few go away. <laughs> enjoyed the first part of my interview with Ray Patchett. We will bring you part two in the next few weeks. Stay tuned and be sure to check out the show notes for more information about Ray and resources from the show.